brands with customers are like communities. And in today's world, communities are defined by where you meet, where you communicate or find your news, and where you shop. So if you keep that in mind as people or brands start to travel around the world, putting your brand in the right distribution and having communication with the right platforms to share your story and the right people who sort of share your values or your ethos or define what community you're targeting to keep true to what your brand is about, to me is the key to building a long-term sustainable brand. That was John Dempsey. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training and showcase their expertise and story. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Marnie on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Salop. Today's guest is really awesome, and I'm looking forward to sharing. He is one of the world's most talented and visionary brand builders, responsible for creating and growing several top beauty brands that are loved around the globe. If you're a beauty or fashion insider, you know John Dempsey. If you're not, I thought you might want to discover the person responsible for bringing you some of your favorite fragrances, cosmetics, and skincare lines. John Dempsey is the executive group president of the Estee Lauder companies. You've heard of MAC, Tom Ford Beauty, Joe Malone London, Smashbox Prescriptives, Too Faced, Becca, By Killian, Glam Glow, Frederick Mall, Lalabo, and Rodan Ulio Luso. These are just a few of the brands in John Dempsey's portfolio. He also serves as chairman of the MAC AIDS Fund, which has raised more than $480 million to date in the fight against HIV and AIDS, spearheading the wildly successful MAC Viva Glam celebrity campaigns. Fueled by his pet squad of seven dogs, it was six when we recorded the podcast, just for the record, and three cats, his 10-year-old daughter, and his daily strength and cardio training, along with an Instagram feed that is laugh out loud funny, it's no wonder John Dempsey is at the helm of one of the world's biggest beauty empires. John joined the Estee Lauder companies in 1991 after years of working in retail, beginning at Macy's, then Bloomingdale's and Saks Fifth Avenue. But it was truly the life-changing opportunity to run Mac, where he was appointed president in 1998 that changed his career forever. Dempsey built the small niche makeup artist brand into a global cosmetics powerhouse. Distribution expanded from 19 markets to more than 75. And today, MAC is the top-ranked prestige makeup brand in the U.S. and is distributed in more than 105 countries worldwide. He also worked closely with fashion designer Tom Ford to create Tom Ford Beauty's successful private blend and signature fragrances and the Tom Ford Cosmetics Collection. On today's episode, John and I talk about where it all began, his glamorous mother and grandmother, the story behind Mac and Estee Lauder, where John draws his inspiration, what he looks for in talent, whether it's a spokesperson or a new brand, his pet squad, 
and his very funny and sometimes serious Instagram feed. And of course, the workout routines that fuel him for success. Get ready for an inspiring, empowering, and fun conversation. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy. Open the app on your phone, scroll past the episode list to ratings and reviews, click on the five stars, then scroll down and click on write a review. Also, follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram. DM or email us at MarnieOnTheMove1 at gmail.com with any questions you may have for me or my guests. And of course, follow today's guest, John Dempsey, on Instagram at jdempsey. Okay, now on to the show. Thank you so much for having me here today in your beautiful office, John. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Marnie. Thanks for coming. Yeah. So I'm here with John Dempsey. He's the executive group president of Estee Lauder. And this is a position that you've been in for many, many years and you earned through building some of the most iconic brands in beauty. But where did your passion for beauty begin? My gosh, my passion for beauty, I believe, comes from my passion for pop culture and my appreciation of women and putting it out there, I guess, starts from growing up and having a very glamorous mother and a very glamorous grandmother. And growing up, my mom actually was the daughter of, no one knows this actually, my mom was the daughter of a man who was in the, the yarn business and he actually provided all the yarn for Rudy Gernwright in the 1960s. So growing up in Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is like super square and super old school suburban, my mother was running around in Rudy Gernwright, not topless bikinis, but mini skirts and hot pants and go-go boots. And my grandmother was walking around in Halston with her winged eyeliner and falls and wigs. And so I was surrounded by these very extrovert women. And as it turns out, my grandmother's first cousin, Bernie, was in the fragrance business in Chicago. He actually made a killing after World War II selling air conditioners because there were no air conditioners after World War II. And they right. didn't know what to, he didn't know what to do with his money. So right. he, he'd done all these analytical reports and found out that there was a lot of margin in the fragrance business. So he actually created Jovan and created the original sexy musk oils that were sort of the phenomenons of the 1970s. So cousin Bernie Mitchell, my flamboyant grandmother and mother, Rudy Gernwright, and all that jazz and being a pop culture sort of addict contributed to my interest in the beauty business. That's so interesting. And so, and even back then, like the Jovan Musk commercials were pretty cool and very pop culture-y. Totally. Yeah, it's very interesting. And so when did you get your start in beauty? I guess I got my start in beauty. I went to Stanford University and then I went to NYU Business School and had a traditional sort of marketing economics finance background. I got my start in beauty in retail. I got my first job going through the executive training program at Macy's. Rosemary Bravo actually hired me, who sort of an icon in the fashion and beauty industries. And I began my career as an assistant buyer at Macy's in fragrance. So way back in the Jurassic 1980s. That's so funny. And did you ever think like you'd end up working in the beauty industry? Was that something that you wanted to do when you were in college? It wasn't my first notion of myself as I wanted to be in 
entertainment, fashion, something relative to pop culture. Mm -hmm. And I sort of started piecing sort of things that I'd seen in my life at an early age and came to understand that actually being in the beauty business and working with fashion and storytelling and advertising and product development and branding actually was an amazing place to bring all these things together. So it was a bit informed based on family background, but something that I got very interested in very early in my career. And it took off very organically. I can't tell you that I woke up one day and said, I want to be, you know, Estee Lauder or Charles Revson. But I, I knew who Charles Revson was. I knew who Estee Lauder was. I was interested. I also knew who Robert Evans was. I also knew, you know, I knew who sort of everybody was, but it, it happened organically. It wasn't done with a grand scheme. Right. So what happened? Oh gosh, I graduated school. Yeah. I had to get a job. It was the big recession in the early 80s. If I didn't get a job, I'd have to move back to Ohio because my father was going to pull all the money. Right. And I thought, <laughs> I got to get a job because totally. I want to go back to Ohio. <laughs> so I had a friend of a friend who knew somebody at Macy's and that's, I met Rosemary Bravo, got in the training program. And by the way, I was a total failure in my first job, total loser. Actually, I went through the training program, ended up not being in beauty. I ended up being in the junior's department in a store line assignment in Parkchester in the Bronx, managing the Sergio Valente jeans department. And it was my job to chain up the jeans so people couldn't steal them. And they were playing flash dance. I'm a maniac for your love. So somebody, I was having like a breakdown because I <laughs> thought I was not ready for this. Yeah. And I was standing in the store there you know, sort of flipping out and somebody walked in and looked at me and said, you know what? You don't look like your Macy's. You look like your Bloomingdale's. And I thought, you know what? They're right. I do look like Bloomingdale's. So after eight months, I contacted yet another friend of a friend and ended up at Bloomingdale's like five minutes later and ended up once again as an assistant buyer. But at that time, the person who was scheduling all the fragrance spritzers, and this was the heyday of Calvin Klein obsession and mm-hmm. Giorgio Beverly Hills. So I began my career on the floor doing that. And then organically went from Bloomingdale's and I uh, was a buyer at Saks Fifth Avenue. And, and then we had a short stint at, at Benetton on a failed cosmetics venture. But all those experiences yeah. in the first decade of my working life in retail, I got to meet all the great beauty legends still alive and get to see them, you know, from the shop floor or from the buying office. And that was an amazing way to learn a business because I probably, you know, I met everyone. So it was a great start. Now, speaking of beauty legends, Estee Lauder, I mean, I'm sure that people in the industry know the story of where the brand began, but maybe you could tell me a little bit about it. Well, the amazing story of Estee Lauder is that she began this business from her home in Astoria. She had an uncle who had developed these creams in Austria and she, on the stove, made these four skincare products and with those original products began selling in hair salons here in New York, going basically door to door. And she was the original believer that you cannot have success in life unless you work for it. Yeah. And she she was a strong believer in social media in the back in the day way. And her line was there are three ways to communicate in life telephone, 
telegraph, and tell a woman. That principle still holds true today. And she, along with Joseph, her husband, and then even more importantly, Leonard Lauder and Ronald, and subsequently all the grandchildren coming into the business, took this from literally a mom and pop business to the global lead in prestige beauty around the world. It's an amazing story of hard work, creativity, dedication, passion, love for what they do, what we do. And mm -hmm. it's an um, amazing story. And I actually was lucky. I actually knew Estee Lauder. When I had my first second job working at Bloomingdale's, I used to be every other Sunday on the Sunday shift managing the 59th Street floor. And every Sunday, Estee Lauder would come in with her hat. She would come in and knock on the door and she would ask me to get customers so that she could do makeovers. And this was when she was in her 70s. And literally, she would come into the store and she would start doing makeup. And when I came to work for Estee Lauder in the early 1990s, she was still very much here. And I made the tragic mistake, because they had not told her that she had hired me. I made the tragic mistake. I wore a brown suit. Okay. And it's, <laughs> I didn't know, I mean, this goes in and out of fashion all the time. Right. But I wore this brown suit and everybody was looking at like, like, oh my God, oh my God, how could you, you, you know what you've done? I said, well, what did I do? I said, this is a very fashionable suit. And they said... Estee doesn't trust men who wear brown suits. Oh, no. Because Charles Revson wore a brown suit. So anyhow. That's funny. The rest is history. I went I went to Navy Blue and the rest is history. So uh -huh. it's, a, it's so amazing. I mean, you are very lucky to have connected and met with all of these legends in the industry. I feel like now, I mean, I feel like that too. Like I've met and known some of the most amazing people in fashion or beauty and have had the opportunity to meet with them and talk to them and be in their world. And now I just wonder you know, who's next? Who are the next legends for our kids? Who's coming that's, you know, going to do something so innovative and amazing? And Actually, this is a super innovative time that we're in right now. Super disruptive, lots of creativity, lots of ideation and storytelling. And the internet has created this new way of communicating and it's very disruptive. And there are many brands, some of which are part of our company now, which were sort of found their new voice or new success online. I look at Jared and Jeremy from Too Faced. I look mm -hmm. at Davis Factor from Smashbox. Those brands were brands that were around for a while, but found really their mojo in an online community. And I admire, I admire a lot of these influencers who have actually done beauty things. And, you know, there are all these super savvy product people. Many, the ultimate compliment is, I would say like 65% of all the beauty influencers that have a line all started with Mac to begin with. Right. But to see that there's sort of an egalitarian aspect of having access to the world, if you can tell a great story or have a great product. So to say that they're like Estee Lauder or has anybody reached that status? In my mind, no. Right. But I think probably bubbling around somewhere in YouTube or on Instagram, or in the blogosphere, he or she, or many of them, they're there. Yeah. I mean, and I just want to rewind for a second because your name is synonymous with Mac. And I remember, I don't know the exactly when you came on board. I know it was like in 1995 or 1998. Was that? 1995 is when the yeah. company made the majority investment in the company. That's okay. the time that we went public. 1998 is when I officially took over running the brand. And from 1995 to 1998, I had met with and had known the founders, but Frank Angelo actually had passed away. 
And when Frank Angelo had passed away and we'd taken control of the company, I actually was sent to Toronto to start to work with the brand. And it's funny, people say that I'm an overnight sensation, <laughs> but, I, but I, I'm not yeah. an overnight sensation. Actually, I worked for 14 years before I had the life-changing opportunity to run Mac. And it's, and it's very interesting. At the time when I got the job, people thought I committed career suicide because it was a tiny niche brand that was considered to be super alternative and super unpredictable. And people thought it was career suicide. Like, why would I, why would I want to do something like that? Why would I put myself at risk? And it was the greatest opportunity anyone could ever have. And the rest was history. I mean, Leonard Lauder personally said to me, I want you to go to Toronto and I want you to make Mac more Mac than it ever was. What was the story behind Mac though? What was like, where did it come from? The amazing story is it's the story of two men, business partners and partners in life. There was the late Frank Angelo that had a haircutting salon in Cabbage Town in Toronto. And there was Frank Toscan, who was a photographer and a makeup artist. And the original founders of the company actually were in the hair care business before they were in the makeup business. They were in business with Gladys Knight, actually, which I thought was yeah. sort of kismet that last night Gladys Knight sang at the Super Bowl in Atlanta. So they had a, a hairline called Knight, and they used to go into you know, a truck and drive across the United States and Canada to hair shows selling ethnic hair products. During the time that they did that, they started working with a makeup artist named Frances Hathaway. Okay. who's a Canadian makeup artist from Toronto. And they started formulating products that were good to hold and have longer wear under photographic lights and with more skin tone true pigments and special effects and more color impact. And from that, MAC Cosmetics was born. And MAC Cosmetics stands for Makeup Art Cosmetics. And they began out of a hair salon, then to a couple other hair salons, then to Nordstrom and the Bay in Canada, and a few freestanding stores in the neighborhoods where the makeup artist community worked. That would be the West Village or mm -hmm. West Hollywood. And from those indie roots, Mac has become the largest makeup play in the world today in prestige. So it's an it's an un it's an unbelievable story since 1984 that this happened, and it came once again from hardworking people in a family business with a dream always looking forward, never looking back. Very much a modern day version of the Estee Lauder tale. So how do you do that? Like, how do you go from being a mom and pop to being a global brand? I mean, obviously there's many, many steps in between those two diverse and polar opposites, but is there something that's like a deal breaker? Yeah. Well, it depends on, first of all, what business you're working in. Right. And, and the game or the businesses change so dramatically today that yeah. the techniques are very different. But I always try to think or like to think that brands with customers are like communities. And in today's world, communities are defined by where you meet, where you communicate or find your news, and where you shop. So if you keep that in mind, as people or brands start to travel around the world, putting your brand in the right distribution and having communication with the right platforms to share your story mm -hmm. and the right people who sort of share your values or your ethos or define what community you're targeting to keep true to what your brand is about, to me is the key to building a long-term sustainable brand. So for Mac, the core idea was makeup, inclusivity. Our mantra at the time was all ages, all races, all sexes. 
we've changed it based on the evolution of today. It's all ages, all races, all genders, because we are in the gender fluid era now. But the idea was that makeup was a way to come together and to use as a liberating force for self-discovery and personal transformation, no judgment. It was a safe place to use makeup and to use it to be every day or whatever it is that you wanted to be with a kind heart. And that was that was what the brand was about back then. And today that's what the brand is and will be about in the future. And it was one of the first sort of makeup artist brands, like small boutique brands that you guys brought on board. But it was also in the industry. I mean, you really kind of took it out of the behind the scenes makeup yes. artist focused and brought it really into pop culture. Yes. We were not the first makeup brand. Actually, the first makeup artist brand was Max Factor. And that goes okay. back way, 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 way back. But every, and everybody's been very much inspired by the story. But Mac was the first external business that Estee Lauder ever brought into its company. So it was the first brand that we did not develop. And yet, because it was a backstage indie brand, are bringing that forward and are making that a big commercial powerhouse. But at the same time, doubling down and becoming still a very important resource to freelance makeup artists and designers and performance artists around the world was super important. Right. And so what are some of the other brands that you've launched? Oh gosh, in my career, I've launched personally one brand, but it's one brand that I'm super, super proud of. And I can't say that I'm the brand, but I worked with Tom Ford over a decade ago to create Tom Ford Beauty. And that to me was singularly probably my greatest personal satisfaction and accomplishment because to be able to work with such an amazing artistic and creative force of Tom Ford and to start with a blank sheet of paper and to build a business. First, we began with a collaboration with the Estee Lauder brand. At the time, I was running Estee Lauder as well as Mac. And then to develop his own freestanding brand, which started with Black Orchid and the whole reversal of the pyramid in terms of what fine fragrance or artisanal fragrance was about. And what I mean by that is at that time, it was all about the blockbuster fragrance of the moment, which was like the big new movie release. And we stepped back for a moment and said, if we could do whatever we wanted to do, I wanted to put the money in the product. And I wanted to put the money in an assortment of products that was really wildly creative, evocative, provocative, and in some respects, commercial and polarizing all at the same time. And that's what Private Blend became. And the surprise was that the Private Blend business actually revolutionized everything that we've seen in the fragrance business all over the world. Because Tom Ford was the the first, it's not to say that it didn't exist, Mm -hmm. but he was the first person to actually make a big serious business out of it. And from that, we've evolved into total beauty, men's grooming, and it's, it's becoming super super important all over the world. When you look for talent or brands or artists that you want to work with or that you want to develop or cultivate or build a line for or of products, whatever it is, you know, it could be makeup, it could be fragrance. What are you looking for and where are you finding these people now? For me personally, there's always this tension between being too early, being on time or being too late. I'm usually the guy that's a little on the early side. I hate being a person who's too much on the late side. And in working in a big company, there's always a tension in terms of getting everybody to sign up for taking those bets. I 
my entire career, the things that I've been most successful with, especially on the collaborations with Mac, are the things or the people that I saw or the team that I worked with saw way before anybody else did. And at first, people questioned what it was that I was doing. And then later, people sort of started to celebrate it. So I was, you know, the early adapter on hip hop and the whole focus of Mary J. Blige and Little Kim and all Missy Elliott and all the amazing black divas. I was an early, an early adapter of Lady Gaga. I was the first person who signed up for Miley Cyrus as she transitioned from Hannah Montana. I signed up for, and granted, Ariana Grande was a big child star, yes. but she wasn't taken seriously as an artist like she is. Thank you, next, now. And, you know, so I, when I look back over the period of time and all the amazing people and artists that I met with, a lot of very interesting people and unusual people. And that's always made me something personally I love to do because I'm a pop culture junkie. I read the tabloids that are still around in the grocery store. I'm on every Instagram feed, every, every, everything, you know, so I'm always constantly looking for inspiration. I, I go on random blogs. I like going to, whenever, whenever I go to a city, I always like going to niche neighborhoods or having people take me to clubs or going to see something that's sort of not the norm. I want to know what the indie people are doing. I want to know what the posh people are doing. So actually the founders of the Labo yes. refer to it as posh and trash. But posh I, and trash. But I think that there's a healthy discourse in branding between posh and trash because I know myself. Yeah. And, and you're I, the pioneer behind many, many brands. <laughs> and I like that. So I, I live in the culture and I guess I'm super lucky that I have an insurance policy right now. Mm-hmm. Of having a 10 and a half year old daughter. My daughter is showing me, and I have a 26 year old niece, and they're showing me where culture, where fashion, and where beauty is and is going right now. Yeah. And it's super interesting to understand and to see, or to go down that sort of digital rabbit hole to see what pops up. And I, I can tell you, it's fundamentally enlighten me to the next wave. Speaking of the next wave and talent discovery, my partner has an 11-year-old daughter who lately has been on TikTok nonstop. Is your daughter into TikTok? No, she's obsessed with TikTok. Yeah. But so is she, is she also on YouTube watching videos? Yes. And no, she so- does. Actually, my favorite moment two years ago when she was eight, it was Christmas time and I walked into the, the living room and she had her iPhone, which was She's too young to have had, but she had one anyhow. And she had the iPhone and she was talking and chatting away with this hairbrush. I said, what are you doing? She said, oh, daddy, I'm doing a hair tutorial. And I looked at her and I said, daddy is so proud of you. We're going (laughs) to stick with this. I think it's going someplace. That's so funny. Well, who is she or who are you looking at on YouTube these days in terms of the beauty in beauty? She she likes Nikki tutorials Mm -hmm. and she likes... She likes all the guys that, you know, do themselves up. She finds that James super. James Charles. She loves James. She's obsessed with James Charles. Yeah. She's obsessed with Patrick Starr, which Mac had a very fruitful one year long collaboration with. The James Charles thing is unbelievable. She's yeah. very into glitter and, you know, she likes Desi Perkins. She likes Jojo Siwa. You know, yes. she, she's entering, you know, she's now more of a tween. So she's dropping 
the more My Little Pony type of stuff. Yes. And she's starting to gravitate towards the more extrovert stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm sure there's a goth period coming up soon. I'm sure there'll be a black lipstick or something. It's yeah, gotta, no. It's got to happen. It's my partner's daughter listens to James Charles. It's part of her morning routine. No, but my daughter's obsessed with James Charles. Yeah. I, 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 that, that's the one right now. She's also discovered dance videos. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you know, doing the floss, doing it. She just loves dance videos. Well, all the videos that are from that video game that yeah. the kids are playing called Fortnite. Well, she also is building these virtual houses on Roadblock. So she likes Roadblock. Is that she, like that Minecraft? That's like a Minecraft. Like it's like a home decorating Minecraft. And you, you know, she, she ordered a limousine actually the other day. She's can I buy a limousine? I said, well, how much is it? She says, $50. I said, well, what do you get for a limousine for $50 online? A virtual, there's a car with a garage and all these things that came with it. So she has it now, yes. Tell me about your pet squad. Okay. So I have six dogs and three cats. Granted, we live in a world of emotional support animals and I live a stressful life. So I have a lot of emotional support. So I started my pet journey actually six years ago when I got two cats and they're these Havana Brown cats where they call them the puppy cats. And they're with this amazing personality and Marie Helene chose their names. You can tell they're their names. One is named Dora, mm-hmm. like Dora the Explorer. The other one is named Olivia, Olivia the pig. Uh-huh. So I started with the two cats and super into the two cats. I hadn't had pets since I was a kid growing up in Ohio. So it was like a big move to get the cats, the litter box, the whole thing. And then yeah. we added a third cat because I had grown up with a Siamese cat. I thought, well, if you got two, what's another one? We'll get three. And we had Mr. Pink. Mr. Pink has commitment issues, so he doesn't really let me touch him, but but he's beautiful. So, he, so he's, he's a real cat. Yeah. The other two are more human-like. And then I decided my daughter wanted a puppy. I thought it was better to have two. Mm-hmm. So I got two French bulldogs. What was the thought process with two? I'm just because curious. They, because <laughs> they keep each other company. Uh-huh. So, so I got two French bulldogs. I got Max and Scout. It was like five years ago. And then, albeit there was a, the dogs didn't get along and they went into like this sort of blood feud. Mm-hmm. Like it was really bad. And I had to get rid of one of the dogs. So, which is very me. I gave away the dog that attacked the other one, mm-hmm. even though he was my favorite. So I gave Max away and kept Scout. So then I needed to replace Scout. So I got Portia, who's a black and white Frenchie. Okay. And so then we had two dogs and the three cats. And then we went to the dog groomer and there was a little black French bull and my daughter fell in love with it and said, well, can't we try it? Can't we, can't we, can't we? And lo and behold, arrived Naomi. So we have the three Frenchies, the three cats, and we went to a birthday party and there was a Pekingese there. Was it a puppy party? It was a puppy party. Oh God. It was a puppy birthday party. Yes. And there was this Pekingese and, you know, lo and behold, we ended up with a Pekingese, which was toffee. And of course they never can come alone. And a year later came Donut. So six dogs, three cats. Six dogs, three cats. So do you walk the dogs? I've been known to walk the dogs. I don't, I'm going to be honest. I don't walk them myself every day. I'm lucky enough to live in a house. I have a backyard. I do take some of them out for a walk when it's beautiful. You can't walk all six of them at one time anyhow. Right. But I do have a subscription service to Nature's Miracle. 
Okay. So I have it on auto replenishment on Amazon. I have it in every formation, spray on industrial strength, every scent, because they are very talented in the urinary arts. Yes, yes. And so, and you have a beautiful apartment. So, I mean, that must be, you must be very relaxed about that. I'm not that relaxed about it. They're they're, they're actually held to the basement and the first floor with occasional visits upstairs. They don't sleep with you? Sometimes, yeah, they do. But but I I can't let them have a full run of the house because they eat the cat food and mark their spot. So The dogs? Yes. So do they all get along, the dogs and the cats? The cats and the dogs don't really converse. Are they, they on they, separate separate areas? They're territorial, yeah. yeah. So, and so what do you feed them? They have dry food and treats and stuff like that. I don't cook for them. I actually did have gourmet health food made for the dogs and they broke out into a rash. So we went back to the sort of proper... I'm sort of struggling that with that right now with my two dogs because they... One dog is pretty hardy. He's a schnauzer and he can eat, yeah, he can eat everything. And the other one is an Australian Labradoodle. Yeah. And it's my first time having one of these dogs and he's just nuts and he's like allergic to all kinds of things. I don't know. So we are just feeding him. We cook for them. We just like every day we like, but I'm leaning towards going back to dog food because it's becoming such a big. We do make, (sighs) I do make them rice. Yeah. When their their stomachs get a little out of control, you give them rice. Rice, rice and like sweet potatoes. Yes. Yeah. That I do do. Do you find them to be like a constant source of relaxation and? Yes. Yeah. I think, you know, they wait for you. When I come home, you know, you know, dogs are very conditional. So they look into your eyes. They're very responsive. If ever I have a good day or a bad day, I always know they're there for me. The cats, mm, not so much. <laughs> yeah, no, I've never had a cat. What, like, do they, they're the just cats, kind of no, like. The cats, the cats prowl around, but they actually can read you pretty well. And I'll sometimes sit down and try to read a book and then they'll jump on my stomach or on my lap and they'll start to purr and then I'll fall asleep. That's amazing. Yeah. It must be nice to have all those animals. I love them. It's, yeah. a really, it's a really a luxury to be able to have them and to be able to take care of them because it's not realistic for most people. But, no, but, but I, you can have one. I mean, that's I, realistic. No, yeah. I think it's, I can't imagine. Actually, someone had told me that Liz Tiberis at Harper's Bazaar said right. she never trusted anyone who didn't have a pet. And I actually could understand that now. Did you ever, did you meet her when she was yeah. there? Yeah. she I'm was sure a legend. I think I worked there when she was the editor-in-chief, yeah. like I was an assistant or an intern or something. Yeah. 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 And so do your dogs all have different personalities? Like are the Frenchies different than the other yeah, dogs? Yeah, there's, there's the gregarious Frenchie, which is Naomi. There's the chilled back, laid back dude, which is Scout. There's sort of the Zoftic little coquette, which is Portia. There's the flirtatious little donut. There's the aggressive toffee. So yeah. How does your pet squad fuel you for success in your business every day? I don't know. There's just this warmth and love and positivity and animals live in the moment. People don't. And there's something about seizing the day and living in the moment and appreciating a moment that animals can teach you. And I think that's, that's a great lesson for life. Yeah. So they help me live in the moment and my daughter keeps me focused on the future. So it's a, it's a good combination. That's awesome. And now what are you doing these days for exercise or wellness that keeps you? I'm also, I'm a person that it's like an all or nothing. So I work out six or seven days a week. I have a gym in my house. I have three trainers because I can never break up with the trainer. Mm -hmm. So I've got three trainers and I alternate. So 
So I go to this gym on, on Madison Avenue, this nutty woman named Marianne Browning, Browning Fitness. Yes, she's a South she African. Is, yeah. She's very, she's very much in your, in your everything. And I work out with her and then I got two guys who come to the house. And so every day. Every day, just different strength different training, subjects, strength running. Training, running, cardio. So then I get a massage. I'm not a wellness person. Yeah. I would like to be, but I tried, but I, I failed. I like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches too much. So yeah, it's a, yeah. You can put some kale in there. Just okay. kidding. <laughs> I like a kale. I like disgusting. a kale. I like a kale salad actually. Yeah. Yeah. Has this all your life, your whole career, always working out? I've always been disciplined. Yeah. When it comes to that, so I, you know, before I could afford, I used to always take classes. So I went, used to go to Radu. I used to do all the Eastern European calisthenic stuff. I've done the aerobic stuff. I've done the circuit stuff. So yes. Is there anything that you can take from the world of fitness and exercise into your day-to-day business? Absolutely. Well, first of all, life, harmonization, balance, structure, physical culture mixed with popular culture for me is super important. And I think to be successful, you have to be goal-oriented. You have to know what and where you want to be and the type of person you want to be. And I think through living a healthy life or a balanced life and being, you know, having a good physical exercise program and a good dietary program that helps zone you to focus on what's important or what you think is important. I think it's super important. I swear by it. Yeah. And do you see any of that coming into the world of what you do at work at Estee Lauder and beauty? Yes. First of all, it's the way, first of all, I, I approach my job and the way that we conceive of products clearly the whole evolution of wellness and good for you and sustainability and formulated without and clean beauty and you know all these things are super important and super important all over the world it's interesting generationally when you have these conversations because mm-hmm. you know when you're older like i am i'm interested more in anti-age or how to prevent you know the aging process or how to look or feel your best as you get older. And you look at younger people who haven't a clue and they're living in the moment and living in the now. And I always laugh and I say to them, you'll see. Did that ever? Something, yeah. something, something will be coming, something will knock on your door and all of a sudden you'll go, oh, I, I get it. I get it now. Yeah. Yeah. I think I lived in the now until about five years ago. Yes, and I was like, oh my God, that French person I was friends with that mm-hmm. told me to use cream every day. And I was like, why? When I was 25, I should have listened. That's how it works. The Estee Lauder company is certainly ahead of the curve when it comes to clean beauty, as well as offering allergen-free and fragrance-free products. What are some of the brands that you have that are clean beauty and fragrance-free? We do have brands that are are in the sort of the formulated without space. I mean, actually, Origins, Aveda, Clinique are very much from their very beginnings natural products as Origins and Aveda or with what we do with Clinique, which was always formulated without allergens, without fragrance, without parabens. So, and the thing about clean is who defines it? Right. Because the definition of clean is a little fuzzy depending on how one defines it. But in terms of a general North Star, Mm -hmm. products that are good for you, that get you great results and cause no harm, that's absolutely a non-negotiable. Tell me more about Clinique. I know the brand has a big anniversary this year. The Clinique brand is 50 years young this year. And the brand was founded in the late 60s, which was really a revolution in beauty products. 
because it was the first brand that was formulated fragrance-free and allergy-tested. And in those years, and to this very day, there is no, not one product, we call it the power of one, there's not one product that comes on the marketplace that can be released if one person has an allergic reaction. So from the very beginning, mm. Clinique was formulated with that in mind. Now with today's lens of formulated without or mm -hmm. new transparency in terms of ingredients and sourcing and such, the Clinique brand has further evolved its formulations to, to make itself even more formulated without and good for you. But it's from the very beginning, that was the premise of the brand. When Origins came on the marketplace in 1990, the natural formulations and the idea of the power of nature was really from the very beginning what the brand was about. But yes, there are many brands that have come to light today that start day one on the clean position. It's definitely something that's here. It's definitely something that's important and something that we look at. I've interviewed a lot of founders on the podcast that are launching and building natural organic skincare lines with real live ingredients or live bacteria. And I just wonder... How are they going to scale? Because the shelf life of these products is not sustainable for business. Some of them have found solutions, but what are your thoughts on that topic? The issue, the issue on the packaged goods business, maybe online changes all this, is that the shelf life of a product needs to be able to live for at least about a year to two years. So a lot of those products, which are very much formulated within the moment, have to be used on the freshness piece within like, 90 days max. So it's unrealistic to leave that type of product out in the marketplace because yeah. it just doesn't. Actually, it's one of the, the notion behind um, Clinique Fresh Pressed, actually. The Fresh Pressed product actually has the concentrated vitamin C and it actually doesn't release with the actual serum until you actually break the seal and press the formula together to get that instantaneous burst. Because if you were to formulate a fresh pressed product without having to fresh press it, it wouldn't last. Right. So that sort of immediacy or potency issue is something that is super important. Yeah. I just think the, the industry is changing, right? So Absolutely. Speaking of change and the evolution of things, I love your Instagram feed. Some of your posts are laugh out loud funny. What's the inspiration behind your feed? So Instagram for me is like therapy. So I started, actually, I did my first Instagram post three years ago, actually, with someone on Catherine's staff who showed me how to do it because I didn't even know how to do it. We were having a press event with Ariana Grande, who at the time had like 20 million followers. Now she's like 130 million or something, something crazy. And so I was going to post it. I don't, I, and I never, I hardly ever do original content and I never do hashtags and I don't manage my community and I right. don't care about my brand and... I just, you know, I flood, I do all the things you're not supposed to do. And I just go through Instagram and YouTube and just curate stuff that amuses me or inspires me. And from time to time, drop a brand message of something that I'm working on. And I have like 18,600 followers now. I never work to get one of them. And people tell me all the time. I think I have more people tell me all the time. And someone came up to me in an airport, like in Florida last week and said to me, I just can't begin to tell you how much I laugh every day and how much I look forward to reading your Instagram. So people are actually go yeah. and they pull it up on purpose. 
it doesn't show up as automatically in people's feeds because I haven't worked hard to make it show up on anybody's feed. Right. But actually, people love it. So I love doing it. And it's just sort of something that keeps me in touch. And I, and I learn about stuff on Instagram because yeah. I people are always sending me stuff to start following or looking at. And yesterday I discovered some dancer, some French rap star who was dancing at the Plaza Tanae, and I got super excited. And then I posted it and then like, 20 people said, oh my God, I can't believe you just discovered him. Look at this one, this one, this one, this right. one. And so, you know, you could just spend all day doing that and watching Netflix. Yeah. So, that's, which often I do. So, yeah. Your Instagram is great. I disclose the fact of who I am and what I do, which other people like me don't. And I, sometimes I do think before I push the send button. You do. Because if I use a four letter word or I get worried if a kid is going to look at it, or I always wonder if, if something is offensive to anybody yes, in smart. a sexual way or a racist yeah. way. I don't want to, if ever I did by accident, I would pull it down, but it's not me to do something like that. And there's some really raunchy stuff that I would love to post, but yeah. I would because I'm, I'm PG 13. I'm yeah. Not, I'm, I'm very not, PG. Not, I think I'm, I'm PG, very PG. I'm PG 13. Yeah. I'm not rated RX. So yeah, no, I think I'm, uh, I'm pretty PG 13, but I'm not really like I would, I would no, too. But there, like, but there is just, I mean, some of the stuff is so just dark, funny, yeah, crazy, but you know who else is really funny? Amy Sacco. She's hysterical. Oh, Amy Sacco, I follow her. Yes. Yeah, she is so funny. No, she's everything she's she does is based. She, everything she does is based on vodka. She's yeah. they're all like drinking, drinking memes as opposed to June Ambrose, who does. I like her too. Style lady memes and and Chloe is crazy, who I just love, or Celeste Barber with the takeoffs of models and her as a full size girl. I just think there's no end to it. Is there anything new coming down the pipeline for Mac that my listeners should look out for? Stay tuned for new news from the Mac AIDS Fund as it evolves itself into the Mac Viva Glam Fund in the month of May because we have very exciting announcements to make of our charitable contributions that have been made via the sale of Mac Viva Glam lipsticks that support men, women, and children affected by HIV and AIDS. So I'm super proud of that. Something I've been involved with for 21 years, and it's a big campaign. We've got a lot of exciting reveals all across the portfolio. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna destroy those moments because we live in the moment. But that's one that I'm personally involved with and personally very proud of. But and you've raised a lot of money for that organization. Um, we've raised nearly a half a billion dollars. Yeah, that's wonderful. Rate. So it's a, it's a big deal. So I'm super super proud of that and super proud of the Mac team and all the Mac artists. That's something to be on the lookout for. How can people stay up to date on that? Just follow the Mac handles and okay. we'll let you know. Okay, <laughs> awesome. This has been really awesome. Thank you. Thank you. This was like the most fun I've had in a long time. So Awesome. Thank you for saying that. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download, to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me, MarnieOnTheMove1 at gmail.com. And let me know what you're enjoying, 
what you want to hear more of. If you have questions for our guests, just reach out. 